Both Barley and Niffler need high-powered dog food to help them out in the field. Whenever I live somewhere with refrigeration, I love feeding them Nom Nom Now. Niffler can be a slow and picky eater, and he actually dances and whines when he knows Nom Nom Now is coming out of the fridge, and then licks the bowl clean. Nom Nom's food is full of fresh proteins that your dog loves, and the vitamins and nutrients they need to thrive. You can actually see proteins in vegetables like beef, chicken, pork, peas, carrots, kale, and more. When you sign up for Nom Nom Now, you share information on your dog's age, breed, weight, allergies, food preferences, and, importantly, their activity level. Then they'll tailor specially made blends and serving sizes to your dogs, which are delivered in a huge, exciting refrigerated box. If you're ready to make the switch to fresh, you can order Nom Nom Now today by going to zen.ai slash canine conservationists one and use the offer code canine conservationists all one word to get 50 percent off your first order plus free shipping so again that is zen.ai slash canine conservationists number one and use the offer code canine conservationists at checkout you'll get 50 percent off and of course nom nom comes with a money money back guarantee if your dog's tail isn't wagging within 30 days, Nom Nom will refund your first order. No fillers, no nonsense, just Nom Nom. Hello and welcome to the Canine Conservationist Podcast, where we're positively obsessed with conservation detection dogs. Join us every week to discuss detection training, canine welfare, conservation biology, and everything in between. I'm your host, Gail Fratt, one of the co-founders of Canine Conservationists, where we train dogs to detect data for land managers, researchers, agencies, and NGOs. Today, I am super excited to be talking to Lily Strasberg. She and I talked about using target odor behavior to guide your training choices, how to use mis- mixture training to boost your dog's understanding of target odor while maintaining specificity, and the importance of data to help turn mistakes into learning. But first of all, we've got a science highlight. Lily suggested the paper titled A Review of the Types of Training Aids Used for Canine Detection Training, which was written by Elisa Simon and et al. and published in Frontiers in Veterinary Science in 2020. This article goes over types of material used to train detection dogs, including true material, pseudo-odors, and non-pseudo-alternatives such as dilution, encapsulation, adsorption, absorption, and extractions. So, for true material, it's important to remember that the purest, cleanest samples might actually reduce the dog's ability to recognize the odor in the presence of contaminants in the real world. Sometimes true material is dangerous, controlled, or difficult to handle. Variety that mimics what the dogs will need to detect in real searches is imperative if using true material. For pseudo-odors, these generally don't include any of the target material, but instead have odors that are associated with the off-gassing of the target. So studies have shown that dogs don't necessarily transfer from a pseudo-odor to a real target or vice versa, with one highlighted study on explosives demonstrating a 0 to 25% success rate in transfer from pseudo to real or vice versa. Pseudo-odors may be valid in some cases, such as in the case of cocaine, where dogs consistently find methyl benzoate, which is a decomposition product of cocaine. Dilution involves taking a smaller trace amount of the target odor and mixing it with an inert solid or liquid. It has been successful anecdotally, but one can have but can have large effects on odor profiles, and there's very little research on it. Encapsulation is similar to dilution, but the mechanism is different in that the target is actually encapsulated inside of something like a microsphere, and there's just not much research on this yet. Then we get into adsorption and absorption, 
which involves using steel, cotton, or polymers to absorb or adsorb the odor into a target material. To quote from the article, quote, human sense... Human scent, decomposition, and fungal odor are extremely complicated targets, making evaluation of absorption aids similarly complex. The explosive TATP, on the other hand, has a much simpler odor, and cotton absorption, adsorption, I'm sorry, training aids have been evaluated for this target. TATP cotton training aids have been evaluated, have been successfully deployed for canine training, but for have a very short lifespan. They could only be used for about 20 minutes before the odor was depleted, end quote. So then finally, we get to extraction, which involves removing chemical components of the odor from its true material using a solvent. This has been tested in very limited ways, but shows some promise, including a study with bed bugs where they were able to extract the odor of the bed bugs and then use that rather than the bugs themselves. Most of us in the conservation dog world really only use true material or adsorption, such as cotton swabs and get scent tubes. To quote from the finalization, to quote from the article again, Adsorption matrices, just like the matrices for pseudo dilutions and encapsulations, have considerations that cannot be overlooked. Each volatile compound will interact differently with a different matrix, so one matrix cannot be assumed to function for all target substances. Even if one matrix is applicable for multiple target materials, it will provide different saturation points and diffusion rates for each material. Such transport properties will define the rate at which various volatiles are released into the matrix and may alter the odor profile in undesired ways if left uncontrolled. So that is that for that science highlight. Definitely really interesting and important to consider. Um, And again, you can find that over at Frontiers in Veterinary Science from 2020. Without further ado, let's get to our interview with Lily. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Lily. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So why don't we start out with, you know, tell us a little bit about your history and background as it pertains to detection dogs, because you've had, I mean, just a lot of really, really cool experiences that I think are important to be able to share with our audience before we get into everything else. Sure. Thank you. Yeah. My background, I would say, is a little bit diverse. Um, To go way back, I think my story is pretty similar to a lot of people we meet in the industry with just this passion that you have from an early age. So for my um, Tikkot alum, for my bat mitzvah, I was really dead set on working with dogs for that piece of community service. Um, so I found a shelter, save a dog, that I ended up working with for about a decade. Um, and through that experience, was able to handle just a wide variety of dogs and also started some pet training and caught the training bug there. Um, and then knew I wanted to study behavioral science in college through a bunch of different lenses from biological perspective, psychological perspective, um, worked in ethology labs, neuroscience labs, abnormal psychology labs with um, a variety of animals from birds to rats, uh, rhesus macaques and dogs. And I had this opportunity to work with Duke University for a summer um, with a population of explosive detection dogs performing a cognitive battery of tests to try to determine um, predictive performance profiles in these dogs and how their scores on those tests related to their ultimate performance outcomes to see, um, you know, if the military could use some of those tests alongside some of the other assessment uh, tests that they use um, in procuring and training those dogs to save costs and to make their training time more efficient and really enjoyed that population of dogs. Um, It was just a completely different speed of Labrador that I'd ever encountered before. And um, that really 
I don't know, that moment, that experience, that research experience just lit my heart on fire for the detection field and detection training in general. So after college, I worked for the Karen Pryor Academy as a curriculum developer and was able to meet a variety of really wonderful faculty there and integrate um, their material into a variety of different courses for Karen Pryor. Um, but wanted to go back to grad school, wanted um, to get back to a research setting with those um, detection dogs. And so I um, was recruited into a program at Auburn for cognitive and behavioral science. And I got my master's there um, where I continued to do these cognitive batteries with a really talented researcher over there, Dr. Lucia Lazarowski. She was a lab mate of mine, um, along with Sarah Crickbaum and Adam Davila and my advisor, Jeffrey Katz, Paul Weiner, a bunch of really phenomenal researchers over there. Um, and we were able to look at some of the more ontogenic effects of those cognitive assessments in terms of, um, and sorry, ontogenic just means developmental. So seeing how early on you could implement these cognitive um, tests to determine predictive profiles. So can you give a cognitive uh, battery to a three-month-old puppy or six-month-old puppy or 11-month-old adolescent dog and get these robust um, predictions of their performance outcomes later on? Uh, so that was a really interesting project that I was able to work on. Uh, I also did a lot of MRI work in grad school, so with human, uh, humans and dogs. And so my thesis focused on methods of training dogs for awake, unrestrained brain scans, um, a really interesting methods project there. And yeah, so I got my master's, again, in cognitive behavioral science and through working with that population of single purpose explosive detection dogs through um, Auburn's Canine Performance Sciences, realized that I just wanted to handle, train and handle. So the academic um, career path wasn't quite right for me. So out of graduate school, I found a job at the National Disaster Search Dog Foundation and was there for a couple years um, puppy raising for them and then helping them to train live find and human remains, uh, urban disaster search dogs, working on the rebel pile every day. And um, I also liaised a research, a pilot project with the Penn Vet Working Dog Center um, for the dog's physical um, conditioning and fitness called Fit to Work, where we were making these um, very objective assessments of their current physical fitness and then implementing kind of a workout routine throughout the week, taking a lot of data and seeing how um, those exercises were affecting their physical performance as it translated to their work on the Rebel. Um, a really cool project there. Um, my puppy raised a couple of human remains dogs that are out with, uh, just actually certified with California Task Force 2, which is pretty exciting. Those were lovely dogs to have um, and to train. Um, and then I also, at Search Dog, really caught the bug for cooperative care. So it's important for every dog, in my opinion, but especially for your pretty drivey working dogs, because those search dogs need to go through a lot of decontamination procedures as they're working the rubble. So they need to be very comfortable with handling in that sense, but also they just need regular vetting and grooming. And they're just crazy, right? They're just drivey, crazy, lovely uh, dogs. So to teach them to be kind of cooperative agents in their own care in that way, through a really specific repertoire of behaviors that you install is um, a lovely side training to all of their wonderful detection work too. 
So after a couple years at Search Dog Foundation, I was recruited by um, Cameron Ford and uh, was able to work with him um, training his sale dogs on a variety of targets. That was a really wonderful experience, as well as working with um, the handlers receiving those dogs, doing um, trainer courses for him and traveling around to do um, kind of a subtest of cognition assessments, doing a lot of cognition seminars for him. Um, but the main targets that we were focusing on with his sale dogs were firearms, explosives, narcotics, and bed bugs. Um, so really interesting considerations there as I transitioned from uh, live find dogs where our source material was a whole live human body. I was frequently that person just sitting in the revel on a pile of tug toys for the dogs um, to more static source material. Um, and that was like a playground for me to consider <laughs> all the different um, target odors and different training considerations uh, that you would need for the different, um, yeah, the different operational considerations on each target odor and able to do that day in and day out with a whole truckload of dogs on those different targets. So that was really lovely. Um, after working with Cameron for a while, I apprenticed up with uh, Mike Nesbeth up in Canada. Um, and there I started working with, because prior to that, sorry, I should add that I was working with a lot of Labrador, a lot of Spaniels, a lot of Pointers, a lot of floppy-eared single-purpose dogs. Um, and I loved the Shepherds, but, um, and had worked with Shepherds and Mallies at Search Dog. But with Mike Nesbeth, I really got into uh, working with the Shepherds and Mallies and other more um, kind of protection dialed in breeds, right? So through grassroots, um, after that apprenticeship, I came on as a trainer to their Maryland location. And that's where I'm at currently. Um, and we just do a lot of uh, raising and development to start out uh, dogs for single and dual purpose work uh, for police departments in the US and Canada. We also do a lot of pet, um, pet training in a board and train format here. And yeah, just constant little detection projects. So I take virtual clients for uh, detection work. We have some sport detection stuff. And then um, I am working also with Pete Stevens out in California, a retired officer out of Chula Vista PD, um, to do little detection fundamentals, sport scent work and HR workshops with him, as well as cognition seminars with him. Um, and then I work uh, with Simon Prince to do some detection workshops with him. And uh, earlier this year, we just did a match to sample workshop in Switzerland with a lot of folks from the Switzerland Red Dog Group, which was quite interesting. So just all over the place, anything detection, sign me up. It's super interesting to me. Um, and I really, yeah, appreciate all of the different um, and varied experiences that I've had to be able to have my hands on a lot of different types of dogs and a lot of different types of detection targets and to see those common threads and also where it really varies in the considerations you have to have. Yeah, definitely. And wow. I mean, even though we talked about this during the pre-interview, it's just, it's really amazing listening about through kind of your history and all of the different places you've gotten to work and different experiences you've had. And I think particularly the work that you talked about doing with Cameron Ford really ties into what we were going to talk about today, which is, you know, kind of thinking through target odor behavior or the behavior of your target um, as far as how that's going to inform your training. So why don't we just start diving into that? Why 
does it matter to think about both target odor behavior and target target behavior um, as we're training our dogs? Sure. I would say that in the operations, it's pretty relevant to have your dog have a reinforcement history behind how to resolve the odor problem for where that source material might be most likely to be, um, right? Different places to check. And then also the different like odor threshold considerations or mixture picture considerations that you would expect to find in those operations. So for example, I made a few notes for myself here. Um, for explosives, right? You have a pretty specific door check procedure that you have to do. You're not just going to take your explo dog and bust into any door in case it's booby trapped up top. So you want to have your dog under control and you want them to do a seam check for you on the door because you can see change of behavior, right? Often, um, you know, going into a room, if that room is hot, um, or sometimes I should add, but so you want that seam to be relevant. So maybe you would do some seam hides for dogs to build that reinforcement history on just checking the seam so that when you ask your dog to snip a seam, they're not just blowing you off saying, ah, come on, open the door, let's go search. Because prior to that in your training, you've only done deep interior hides and in rooms, right? So they're used to just blowing through that threshold and going off to find their, uh, their target uh, deep in the room. So you would want to maybe hit a lot of seams and a lot of thresholds with those kind of dogs. Also, for those sort of detectors, yes, you want your dog under control, especially in the types of venues that you would sweep, but you want their obedience to odor to override their obedience to you, especially for explosive odor. So sometimes in the handler courses, we'd set our handlers up where we give them a briefing about where their search problem will be deeper in the building. But then I've set up maybe a pretty um, shallow nose height hide of TNT on their way there or something like that, right? One of the odors in their repertoire. So I'm going to see if their dog will snap on it um, and what that handler will do in response to the dog, maybe or maybe not throwing change on that aid on their way to what they consider to be their search problem. Um, aside from the dog too, we've also set up situations where, uh, Cameron had this kind of pressure cooker IED device. Um, it was inert, but, uh, that he would put out in a very obvious visual way for the handler. So even if the dog wasn't picking up on odor, it's a dog handler team, right? So you need to be vigilant. Um, so that if you're seeing this device deep inside the room, you're going to advocate, you're going to hang back and not continue your search. You're going to uh, just report your findings in that sense. So those are some scenarios that we would do for Explo. Um, for bed bugs, this gets into a little bit of the um, article that I sent over for uh, the science highlight and the material science. I really enjoyed using get sent tubes for the bed bugs. We would get our bugs from Dakota Labs in these thick glass vials. Um, and so for those dogs, thresholding is an issue, right? Because you want them to be able to pick up a whole infestation where they're resolving to a single source of odor or just be able to hit on a single bug, right? So really dialing down their threshold in that sense where the get sent tube was quite nice for that. In addition to considering where the bugs are going to be. So not just in beds, not just in furniture, they'll be in um, the door seam, they'll be in electrical outlets. So to be able to take a get sent tube and fold it up into an ethernet jack to give the dog the reinforcement history to check those electrical outlets is pretty important for that target odor. Um, and then again, in the same light, those thresholding issues, 
relating to odor threshold, odor availability. So from large source material to small source material, several vials of bugs to just the, the get sent tube of bugs or a uh, vial of bugs with very few bugs in it. Um, and then also threshold as it relates to areas. So not just always having your hides way deep in the room where your dogs are blowing thresholds, but to let them come into their search problem and immediately come into odor so that they're starting to work right away without that expectation of having to go deep to, to resolve odor. Um, for narcotics, I would say a lot of container generalization, right? If you're going to be searching luggage, you want to be hitting luggage, but also just a variety of containers, a variety of mixture pictures. Again, you hit at the odor uh, availability issue where you want the dog to be able to resolve really large amounts and really small amounts with a lot of depth because people that are going to be hiding their narcotics might try to hide them pretty, um, pretty stealthily right, with a lot of packing material. So those mixture pictures too, you want the dog to be able to, you're not, not just proofing the dog off of paper and plastic and coffee, but also letting the dog resolve the odor picture of if my target aid is mixed in or my target odor is mixed in with paper or plastic or any other substance, right? It's good to go. But those other substances on their own are no go. So specifically training those mixture pictures um, and giving the dog enough examples of that so that they can spontaneously generalize in their operations is important there for firearms. Um, Again, that frequent generalization. So we would have the officers that we work with get um, guns from their evidence lockers and try to hit different firearms every time, um, have different people put out those firearms. Um, and that's just good practice for any that you're doing, right? Because the dog can surely associate your human scent to their target odor or the odor of where you're storing your aids with that. So the more you can generalize your aids, the better. Um, and I'd say it was really relevant to us for those firearms dogs. The odor availability issue and the thresholding issue comes back again with the GSR from an entire gun versus the GSR that you're going to find on a single casing in the grass, right? Those area hides versus those interior hides versus searching bags and luggage. Like you want to um, know that in your training logs, you're hitting all of these different things. Just what you expect to see and find in your operations, you want to really be hitting that in your training. And then with the firearms dogs uh, and with the electronics dogs as well, there's this interesting cognitive element where the dog needs to make this discrimination because a lot of these officers have guns on their hips, right? But those aren't in play for the dogs. They're trying to find the hidden gun in the school or something. So um, that was something that I also thought was quite interesting with the live find search dogs on the rubble because we'd have, you know, our human victims um, buried in the rubble but then you'd have safeties and spotters on top of the rubble pile that are off-gassing plenty of human scent for the dogs, um, potentially making those converging problems. But the dog needs to know, if I see you, you're not in play, right? Or like if it's the gun on my handler's hip, it's not in play. It's the one that's visually occluded that I'm trying to find. So yeah, through, <laughs> through my work with that, it's like I said, it's kind of a just this like playground of interesting considerations from the chemistry of odor to building on reinforcement history um, to the consideration of the tactics that you would need in these different operations um, all coming into play in your training and things that you would want to consider in your training sessions. Yeah, yeah, gosh. There's so much in there that I'm not even quite sure which direction I want to go next, which is always an exciting <laughs> place to be. But sure. so 
maybe why don't we why don't we kind of drill down a little bit then on like target odor behavior itself um you know one mm -hmm. of the things that we struggle with a little bit in the conservation dog world is we generally just don't know this the same way that you know when i was reading um i read tom osterkamp's book um which now i'm blanking on the name it's it's odor it's an odor dynamics book um okay and you know there was tables in it about the volatility of different explosives based on air temperature and there were tables sure. about you know availability of human remains based on the substrate that they were buried in and all sorts of stuff and mines and uh and actually actually it might have been mines that were actually um land buried land mines that it was the substrate but you know i just remember yep. reading this book and thinking gosh we don't know this for most of the target odors that i've worked on ever so as someone who has had the chance to work in a world where maybe we do know a little bit more about the volatility or the availability of some of your different target odors, how does that affect how you set up a training scenario for a dog? Um, and maybe what do you see differently from a dog working with something that has a much higher versus a much lower volatility or much higher or lower odor availability? I'm not. Yeah, that's a wonderful question. Um, I like to just consider it as a variable as you would, uh, depth or height or search time, odor availability. Again, it's different within your target odorance, but also um, at the level of the dog and what you're asking the dog to do. Maybe if I'm asking them to hit um, depth or um, a more extreme elevation for the first time, I'm going to use, and I like to use this word louder, which corresponds to, in my mind, more odor availability, um, a louder aid or a louder source material variant of that target odor. Um, for that dog in that specific problem. But in general, I like to use um, lower availability odors so that the dog doesn't get into the habit of just like running around until odor smacks it in the face and then he gets to resolve that odor problem, right? Right from the get-go, I'm going to maybe like in my um, narcotic odor repertoire, I might imprint on meth first because that has the lowest um, like pressure to off gas compared to something like heroin or cocaine. So if they're hunting for meth, they're going to be hunting in a more methodical, they're going to be putting a little bit more work in and their sampling than if they would be for some of those louder aids. But again, you can vary that um, not just with the substance itself, but with the types of aids you're using. So pseudo, your typical pseudos, like say a Scentlogic pseudo is a pretty loud aid um, compared to an odor soak like a get scent tube or a precision um, odor print right but I still like to use the get scent tube and the odor print because I don't want it to just be a gimme for the dog where again this odor is super loud I want them to get used to working methodically and sampling um, yeah in a more in a more detailed way in their search um, but then there's a time and place to introduce a louder odor. Maybe the first time they're seeing luggage and you're introducing a lot of depth, um, you will want a, a louder odor um, in those first experiences there so that they can encounter reinforcement more readily. And then you can increase the difficulty of those problems via um, thresholding down the available target odor. And in the same light or in a slightly different light, for your distractors, right? If I'm having a hard time proofing my dog off of a kibble or a ball distractor, it doesn't have to be the whole ball or a whole half cup of kibble. I can um, dial down the available odor of that distractor odor. So it's a pretty loud target odor picture and just a little 
a, a smaller um, scent picture of the distractor. And that's going to be easier for them to work off of and, again, encounter their reinforcement. Um, and then I can slowly in my splits dial that back up into something more extreme that they're discriminating against in favor of their target odor. Yeah, I love those examples, and I love thinking through kind of these different, you know, how can we t change some of these dials, and when might it make sense to want something that is louder, I like that term, versus something quieter. Um, is louder odor always easier? Or, you know, I'm kind of thinking in, like, the sport dog world, where you might be searching a relatively sure. small area with uh -huh. a really volatile um, target. No. Is, yes, what a good yeah. question. Yeah. <laughs> No, not always. If, uh, you know, in some of those uh, little scent work, like live coaching workshops that I've done with Pete, if you are the last dog in the rotation in the afternoon group and the odor has been sitting there for, geez, six hours, that's hard for the dog. They're trying to resolve a huge odor pool. The whole room stinks. Like you can tell the dog as soon as they come into the area, you see some change, but it's going to be potentially harder for the dog or just through the airflow and the dynamics of the room different thermal uh, conditions, the odor is just doing something funky and collecting in a place that you wouldn't necessarily expect that's not necessarily closest to your, uh, your source location, right? Um, so sometimes those bigger odor pictures are quite tricky for the dog. It's just this overwhelming amount of odor and they have a hard time resolving, but still interesting problems to hit if that's um, something. And there's this interesting paper too. Um, I guess it's a little bit of an aside, uh, but of a dog that walked, I think like kilos of an explosive in a backpack because they had been trained on just, you know, maybe a grams of that same target odor. And so it was just a different odor profile, different odor picture that the dog couldn't generalize, didn't know what to do with. Um, and so it really layers into the idea of whatever you want your dog to find quantity, mixture, variant, do your best to be able to train on that and have your dog have experience on that in training um, or at least try to generalize that as much as you can to improve your uh, your chances and your operations of hitting on those things. But back to the sport odors for a moment too, that gets tricky because of uh, the logistics of handling it. It's literally sticky. Like you can, uh, if you don't have good odor hygiene when you're placing your aids, you can really mess the dog up um, in terms of if you're just touching other things in your environment um, and then the dog is hitting on those little pieces of residual odor, which they're spot on. They're 100% right, right? They're trained to detect that odor and they're detecting those trace amounts of that odor and they're 100% on their game, but you're saying, no, 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 that's not where I place my main aid, even though your you know, sticky fingers have actually placed that odor all over the place um, or picking up that aid later on and then you're coming back to that same training place the next day and that odor hasn't necessarily dissipated from that space it's still loud as ever um, in terms of the residual in that place that you you've used so i guess it's just a, a cautionary statement of be uh <laughs> do your due diligence with your odor hygiene and then consider for some of those stinkier stickier odors um, that it's much more important for that to be the case because yeah i can make your uh your trading or your operations go sideways harder to read yeah definitely and yeah i mean it's it's some of these target odors are just so so volatile and yeah i can imagine weed being one of them mm -hmm. that um i think 
some target odors that some of us have worked with, you can get into bad habits because they're not as not as likely to transfer directly um, onto your hand, onto everything you touch. Um, sure. At least not in as obvious of a way. Um, so yeah, that's a really, really good reminder. And, you know, I know we, we think about this a lot in the conservation dog industry, probably in a way quite similar to what you were talking about with the bed bugs, as far as where things are going to be and at what different um, levels, you know, when Barley was Barley and I were working on black-footed ferrets, he got very used to the idea of searching um, holes and checking um, prairie dog holes to see where um, see if we were able to find any black-footed ferrets that actually you know they cohabitate with with um, prairie dogs um, while they eat the prairie dogs. Gotcha. And to this day, Barley still <laughs> okay. um, likes to check holes. Um, which uh, is kind of funny when you're out doing like a jaguar scout project, and he still is kind of magnetized to check any holes he encounters out in the out in the wilderness. Um, but you know, then we also run into this just as far as where certain species like to defecate. Um, as far as you know, should we should we be considering training our dogs on more elevated hides because we are working with a predator that likes to mark um, potentially up on top of dead tree stumps mm -hmm. or things like that. Um, and, you know, I think that's where for us, it's just a lot of talking to all the different biologists and our main project partners, because we don't always know um, enough. And in some cases, you know, just researchers don't actually know enough about where some of these scats are likely to be. And that's part of why they're bringing the dogs in. Um, if it's at all a consideration in your operations, go ahead and hit it in your training. You know, why not? It's just teaching the dog another potential place that their reinforcement could lie. Um, so that yeah. sounds to me like it would be very worthwhile. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I know like one of the things that we do because my dogs, well, particularly Barley, but at this point, Diffler as well, are trained on several different target odors that have really different levels of volatility. We're in really different search environments where their strategies can and should and do differ. Um, and also just where these odors end up in the environment. You know, if you imagine a bat getting hit out of the sky by a wind turbine, it's going to end up kind of mm -hmm. wherever it falls. Um, usually it's on the ground, but occasionally they get hung up in vegetation or something like that. Versus, and it, it could be quite a bit more kind of a random distribution in the um, within the wind turbines kind of strike zone versus when we're doing, you know, carnivore surveys, there's just a lot more actual animal behavior to take into account as far as where they're going to be defecating. So what we'll do prior to going, changing gears from one to the other is, you know, setting up our training for the last couple of weeks before we deploy to kind of remind the dogs and freshen them up on something like that. And I can imagine that's something that you probably do with like an explosives dog is like, okay, we're going to, you know, we've been doing a lot of this. Now we're going to go back and we're going to really work on seams and thresholds to make sure that we're ready for like true deployment here again. Is that accurate? Absolutely. Yep. And I would also say to stretch out their endurance for search. That's uh, a really interesting piece of research that uh, Dr. Nathan Hall and Mallory Deshant just did a project on. I think they're starting to report their findings in conferences if a paper hasn't come out yet already. Um, but just in terms of the target frequency and how that's another piece of the puzzle that you have to consider in your, in your training. If you're setting up your training where your dog is going to get six fines within, you know, 30 minutes, that's not realistic at all. And so then when you come into your operational environment and they register a difference of context, 
they're just going to be taking a walk. You know, they're going to understand that it's not a training situation. Their uh, reward frequency is going to go down and you can put out um, some motivational hides in between. Um, but you also want to consider to just organically stretch the dog out in terms of hitting controlled negatives in your training. Um, and that's not just like a negative room in between your hot rooms, but a whole deployed search where you're getting the dog out, you're doing your whole routine, you're doing a search for a while, and then you just put the dog up and the dog has found nothing. And then, you know, you want to balance that in with um, other factors that you have to hit. But that's certainly an important one that I think gets overlooked because it's so much more fun to have the dog find something, indicate, go through the whole reinforcement procedure, but they're not fine dogs, right? They're search dogs. So you want that searching behavior to be quite robust. And then to hit on a thing that, um, in terms of the loudness of the odor picture from before, also when you're placing your aid, you have this whole big scent plume coming off of you and you're lingering there and you're getting the aid exactly where you want it to be. And, you know, jury rigged into this little great hidey hole that you found and you're putting out so much of your own human odor. If your dog has any experience with tracking, they can hang back on that <laughs> piece of experience um, to help them as a crutch to resolve that problem. So I'll put my aids out and then I will just crouch down in a few different places. I'll take my gloves off that I used to handle the aid and just touch a whole bunch of different things so that that makes it less likely for the dog to be able to use my own human scent as a crutch to help them resolve the problem. And then to that end as well, I'll have different people put out the aids and then whenever I can use different, um, different aids so that they get a whole variety of examples of their target which is sometimes more realistic to be able to um, get than others, depending on what target order you're working with. Yeah, that's one of the things we did a lot of with um, when we were out in Guatemala. You know, if Barley found a really good new sample, we brought it home so that we could train Niffler with it because Barley is our much more experienced dog and Niffler had a really hard sure. time on that project in Guatemala. So it's like, all right, whenever, you know, they've got the researchers have their half that they're going to use for the DNA uh, metabarcoding. Now we're going to take our little section that we're going to then get to bring home and, you know, see, is Niffler actually showing an appropriate response and change of behavior to these novel odors the first time they're presented to him or not? Um, and then, you know, yeah. we're still not able with that particular setup to resolve the question of, is he appropriately making the jump then to something that Barley has not yet found and that has not yet been handled by people? Um, sure. And that's just something, you know, within kind of a reasonable controlled training scenarios, there's just only so much that we can mm -hmm. do. And that's something that I can't remember. I think I was reading... Um, was the the book edited by Nio Richards, which you you would not have read, but it's using dogs to monitor um, aquatic ecosystems, Very cool. uh, or something okay. along those lines. And they talk okay. in that book about how you know in conservation we're relatively unique as far as our targets. Most of the time, should not have any human odor on them at all. Um, mm -hmm. versus, you know, drugs, firearms, bombs, any of these things. Like, at some point, they were touched by someone. Um, yes. And, yeah, you know, I, like, I don't think that was the entirety of Niffler's problem at all in Guatemala, but it was definitely one of the things that as we were trying to get his training back on the rails, you know, I was just driving myself crazy trying to think that are like, gosh, but how do I know just because he's responding well to something that Barley has already found that he's not just responding to the fact that Barley has already found it and now I've touched it. Canine Conservationists offers several on-demand webinars to help you and your dog go along in your journey as a conservation dog team. Our current on-demand webinars are all roughly one hour long and priced at $25. 
They include Puppy Scent Work, all about raising and training a conservation puppy, Found It, Alerts and Changes of Behavior, and What You Looking For, Teaching Your Dog a Target Odor. Find these three webinars along with jackets, treat pouches, mugs, bento boxes, and more over at our website, canineconservationist.org slash shop. So one of the other things that you mentioned way back, you know, probably like 15 minutes ago now that I wanted to circle back to was this idea of training dogs on, um, on mixtures and how to, how to work on getting the dog to alert to, you know, you said drugs in the presence of paper and plastic, but not paper and plastic without drugs. I know this is something mm -hmm. we talk about in the conservation dog world in the realm of like multi-species latrines where you might have multiple animals at all, you know, post on the same Facebook page every couple days. Um, and you, you know, trying to determine if and when and how to reward your dog in that situation with the concern being that, you know, you're rewarding them for the pumice gap. But they also had a face full of, you know, five different other species at the same time are we now going to end up with a dog who's going out and finding all of those other species um tomorrow absolutely maybe yeah and i think i remember listening to one of your uh recent podcasts on wood turtles and how they were starting to get a turtle finding dog like they had put him on a couple species of turtles and he was like ah okay you guys like turtles and he was generalizing across species i would say um to go back to your foundations and really lean into your discrimination pictures because the area hides accomplish some really wonderful things to install, um, you know, reinforcement history behind checking certain types of places for the dogs, how to resolve those big odor pictures, but to go back to a lineup, um, sort of picture for the dog eases back those variables so that you can really focus on the yes, no discriminations of what that target odor is going to be. Um, and that's, I think just good training, right? As you increase one variable, you're relaxing the criteria of others. So, to put your ego on the sidelines and not say, oh, I'm too good for my foundations work. The foundations are everything, man. So going back into those lineups and pitting your non-target scat against your target scat and giving your dog reps of discriminating against this one in favor of that one for HR. They're having a hard time leaving uh, animal remains, then put it in a lineup. Animal remains to this. If they're having a hard time against uh, dog and heat smell, dog urine smell, put it in a lineup, dog urine smell against your target odor. And all day long, your target odor is going to pay you heavily, right? Um, and all of these things, no go. And then you can handle it as, as you want to, right? You can give them a leave it or you can just let them resolve it on their own. Simon Prinz has a really slick odor recognition test procedure uh, where within that test for each target odor uh, in your dog's repertoire, he has five variants of that target potentially, um, as well as a blank run for the dog. So, and it, that's just like any sensor, right? They also need to be calibrated at zero for those blank runs, but that ORT procedure addresses, um, the ability to understand your dog's reliability within those mixture pictures. So, um, I did one with his, uh, older dog, Charlie on Kong, and he had Kong infused on a penny, Kong infused on a wooden dowel, just large pieces of Kong, small pieces of Kong. Um, and so all of those for each different rep of the ORT trial, and he has this wonderful course on, on his website um, to understand how to do it along with many, many different distractors where you're swapping out the distractors each run um, so that you can trust in your dog's reliability to be able to hit on those mixtures. And even without that double blind single or double blind ORT procedure, you can still hit on those mixture pictures in your lineup training, right? So um, not aspirin, but maybe like 
cocaine and baby aspirin is good, but baby aspirin on itself is not good, right? And just giving your dogs rep and ex- reps and experience with those sort of discriminations in a pretty sterile, um, controlled setting. So that will generalize then back out into their uh, area fines. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And I love the explanation of both using this for discrimination and bringing back in those mixtures. Um, yeah, I, I really, really like that. It seems really clean. And we were I was just at the IABC mm-hmm. conference this last weekend, and we were having all sorts of fun discussions between myself and some search and rescue dog handlers about, you know, how we have resolved problems like this with various dogs that we've worked with and, you know, had a lot of fun talking about how di- some of the approaches that one of us had used that had had a lot of success with our dog, you know, then the other person was like, oh my gosh, I did my foundations in a totally different way. And I don't think that would have worked for us at all. So the example, and I think this is going to come out before this episode, but, um, so people will be familiar with it, but the work that we did with the Action for Cheetahs team in Kenya, the dogs were alerting to Caracal and Leopard Scat um, about as frequently as they were alerting to Cheetah Scat in their training. Um, mm-hmm. Like almost every single session that they put out, both odors, the dogs were alerting to just whichever one they encountered first. They were being told, no, sure. search on. And then they were going on to find the correct odor. Um, and they had done this for so long that we were able to kind of see that this was not decreasing the dog's um, false alerts over time. And what we actually ended up doing was an extinction protocol where we just waited the dogs out. Um, and they learned that, you know, just kind of gambling with their sits wasn't actually getting them any information and wasn't getting them to their ball any faster. Um, and it was so funny talking to a couple of the other, uh, the other search and rescue folks around because, you know, one of them was just like, my dog would have immediately started aggressing towards the hides. Like that would have just been our, uh, like we would have blown up into a whole other problem so 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 quickly <laughs> you know it was just and a real totally, it was it yeah. was so fun being like oh yeah you know based on who your dog is and like all this experience like i could have had an entire third one hour talk just about all of the different reasons that this worked specifically for this pair of dogs and their learning histories and like don't for the love of god treat this as a training plan that you can just throw at any dog making false alerts because you mm-hmm. absolutely will end up with other problems depending on where you absolutely. and your dog and don't are love that within this industry right there's many roads to Rome. so yeah. yeah to to address that you can tell them to leave it and search on but for a dog that's like ah you're acknowledging me waiting them out or negative punishment reset them back right for my lineups i really like to utilize a cato board or a mark um in between reps so that i can do this solo and i can get my dog back in a place where they're just kind of doing their saw, taking you know they have this little mental anchor they're in control on this spot while I'm doing my shuffling or whatever I have to do, taking my data, doing my shuffling in between my reps um, and then sending them back. But then if they false alert for some dogs in that false alert, I'll say wrong Mark, you've lost your opportunity for access to reinforcement within that rep. And that's costly, right? So in the behavior economics of it, that behavior might decrease in that method. But again, some dogs you'd want to wait out and some dogs you'd want to give give feedback to. And it just depends on the dog, depends on the trainer, depends on your target and all that. And then uh, with distractors that are getting pretty sticky, like we hit on earlier in the episode, dial down the threshold of odor, right? Use a restrictor cap um, or put less material in in some way to help them and then split it back in um, to a more normal way that they would see that picture. But you can always find your splits, right? Just identify what that kind of target picture that you're looking for is that goal picture it is and then spend time thinking about it and planning it 
and writing a little protocol. And a protocol is not the end-all be-all, right? As uh, I really, really like how um, Simon trains and explains things. And he's always talking about protocols and talking about data keeping and saying it's a living fluid document, right? But it's really important to spend that time to consider what those splits are going to be and what your path is going to be. And then training becomes fun and those mistakes become really fun to see where those holes are. And then you get to make another plan of how to address that and overcome that. And it's just this constant um, kind of pushing, pushing the boundaries of each behavior that you're working on um, to, to fluency in so many different aspects. And that's why I consider it to be like this big playground because you get to just constantly uh, <laughs> think about these things and see progress and be really creative in your solutions. And as you meet all these wonderful people in your industry, come up with a million tools to have in your toolbox because each dog that you work with is, is different and can teach you so much. Yeah, definitely. Well, and no, I love that. And we'd like the restrictor caps was one of the things that I wish that I had done with the teams in Kenya and we didn't. And, you know, your example of, you know, sending them back to a mark or sending them back to a starting point was something that the dogs didn't have a learning history of like, that wasn't something that they already knew how to do. So for us, it felt like it made more sense. Um, we were only there for a pretty limited amount of time, so we didn't want to have to take that step back to teach them to go back to a place. Um, but sure. that's something that, like, I think also is another cleaner way to do it. Um, and there's just all these different considerations. And these dogs, one of the, like, our saving grace with these dogs in a lot of ways was that um, it was the same thing that is one of my hypotheses for how they got into this mess, is they had done a ton, a ton, a ton of training on these really perfect, very statuesque sit-stare alerts um, to where I think the dogs actually had a stronger understanding of the alert than the seeking and the sourcing. 100%. Um, yes, it's a balance, yeah. and it can so easily get off balance. That so goes, oh, easily. like this behavior. Okay. Toss Great. It yeah, so I'm just, like, whenever I encounter anything, I'm just going to throw this behavior at it. But that was also mm -hmm. the thing that was one of our saving graces because that alert behavior was so strong. When we got, like, our extinction burst, the extinction burst just was them alerting harder. You know, they, was, they sat yeah. more, they sat longer, but we didn't get vocalizing, we didn't get biting, we didn't get digging, we didn't get some of the things that would have been really, really big and problematic um, sure. for that particular protocol. And when we did, did kind of break their alert in a little bit, you know, you could see these dogs like on day three or so of training being like, I don't know what I'm doing anymore. That alert came back mm. really, really quickly as soon as we were starting to be like, no, but we still want that for Cheetah. We still want that for Cheetah. Um, and I... I don't think that, again, I don't think the same approach would have worked for any other dog. And, you know, I'm now getting ahead of myself because I haven't recorded this episode yet, but it's going to be coming out before you and I do this, do, uh, publish this one. So I wanted to, gotcha. we're going to change gears here for um, the last couple of minutes here and talk about kind of using all of this understanding to plan your training sessions better. One of the things that I hear most often from my students, um, as far as mistakes that sometimes can turn into brags, but is people, my students not having a good understanding of how difficult a problem is going to be for their dog before they start sure. it. Um, and that certainly part of that is, you know, my failing as an instructor, as far as figuring out how to better instruct that. Um, but a lot of it also, well, no, that, no, that's, I think it's mostly my fault somehow, but, um, I'm really curious how you help your, um, your students think about this and how you encourage people to, 
um, you know, maybe take data in a way that helps them plan their training more so that you don't end up in these situations where you think that you're setting out an easy warm-up hide and then the dog is searching for 27 minutes. I love mistakes. I learn so much from mistakes. I've made so many <laughs> yeah. mistakes. Um, <laughs> and I think that handlers and any handler is a trainer, right? Some trainers train a lot of dogs, but any individual person is going to be who's handling their dog is going to be a trainer for that particular dog. So I think educating yourself into what the odor is going to do, because we're such anthropocentric creatures. We're so locked into our visual modality. Um, it's hard to understand how the dogs are resolving this chemical problem. And it's just not in a mode that we can perceive or understand without like doing our due diligence to understand what's going on with the different thermal environments and the wind movement and the set time. Right. So part of that is just uh, education and then experience putting hides out and saying, Oh geez, how did that open window uh, affect what's going on here? Having some on the sports network world, they call them dogs in white, right? More experienced dogs. Some of your students that are just working with the one dog might not necessarily be able to, to do this, but sometimes it's helpful to have that more experienced dog run and tell you what that odor is doing before uh, the new guy comes up, just so you can have a clue. But certainly just when you're putting out, setting up those odor problems, when you're doing your lineup data on a wheel uh, in an array, um, just taking data on, on what's happening, what is your duration? What are your uh, falsing pictures look like? What, what is tripping your dog up, right? And then really understanding how to structure your next training session based on that data that you just collected. Do you need to stay the course? Do you need to shift some things to allow your dog to, um, to access reinforcement um, in a, at a higher rate for your next session? And for your area hides to understand, okay, my dog is really pretty proficient at ground to nose level. He's not really anything up beyond his little ears is not super relevant to him. So I need to spend a few sessions or give him a few, um, a few finds in his repertoire to understand that up is also relevant and using that hide placement to teach your dog, right. Where, where those relevant places to search are. Um, so the same thing with depth and then considering all those different variables in terms of okay, if I'm using an aid that has less available odor to it, or it's a particular target odor that does not, that's not super volatile, um, or I'm using maybe my get sent tube narcotic aid as opposed to my pseudo aid, and I know my get sent tube is going to off-gas a lot less, I'm going to increase my set time there. I'm going to make it uh, shallower or something. You know, there's just considering the different variables that you can manipulate so that they have those tools in their toolbox to consider all the different dimensions, and then just taking data. Like, just take your data. Video yourself all the time. So from a vantage point where you can see what you're doing and what your dog is doing, um, really, I think now it's pretty widely accepted of, like, hang back and let your dog do the work because if you really are getting in there, you're not going to be able to read your dog as clearly because you are influencing their behavior more than their environment can influence their behavior, right? But just... I want to say like lean into those mistakes that you make and, and pick out the relevant pieces from them and don't, don't harp on them as, oh, shoot, I, I really screwed up here, but think of it as an opportunity 
to understand what's going on in that sort of picture going forward. Um, I can think of (laughs) a story that's going to make me sound pretty dumb, but um, I was in government housing with a handler class uh, with a couple of firearms dogs. And I thought I just found the best little hidey hole in a vent. Um, And I thought, okay, odor is going to push through here. It's going to give this nice, wonderful odor plume to the dogs. They're going to come into this room. They're going to just be, you know, the handlers will see like nice change because it's just going to be this loud, hot room. um, And they'll be able to source this cone right up over here to the vent. Well, it was intake. So the dogs came into the room and they were casting up. They were throwing all this lovely change of behavior on this couch, on this other side of the room. And I was thinking, what is going on? And I go and I take a piece of paper and hold it up to the vent and it sucks in. And that was just me not doing my due diligence in that moment to understand that there was no available odor there for the dogs. It was all getting sucked up into that intake um, and getting just like washed over the entire room. And the dogs did lovely to resolve that. We had to really think on our toes there. (laughs) They gave us something. They couldn't pinpoint it. Um, But yeah, it's just, you just learn from your mistakes. Same, same with, uh, you know, the interaction of the airflow around windows and how that can do some funky stuff. Like you just have to see it. Um, Steve White just, maybe he didn't just put it out, but um, I was watching it recently, a podcast called 10,000 Hour Eyes. And it's just spending the time getting the reps in and to understand what you're seeing in the dog's change of behavior and then what you're seeing in terms of, yeah, how they're reading those different odor problems and what's happening with the odor. It's a pretty long-winded answer. Hopefully yeah. I got <laughs> No, I think, I mean, it's certainly been something, oh gosh, on like so many different levels that I've thought about both as, you know, a coach and with Niffler in particular, who I think, and I've talked to some other folks who have gone from wind farm work to non-wind farm work with some of their younger dogs and how in a lot of ways it seems like it sets up expectations and search patterns for um, conservation dogs in a way that is a little bit unsustainable or um, you just have to do a lot. I'm having to do a lot more work to transition Niffler from a wind farm to a carnivore survey than it took to take barley from black-footed ferret surveys to boat surveys and then from boat surveys to wind farms. Like, I think because it's always really windy, it's always the same direction. There's never wind, mm-hmm. there's never um, shade cover. Like you might have cloud cover, but there's almost never trees. Um, it's just this, it's these very simple, long, clear odor cones in most cases. Um mm. That then, you know, getting getting these dogs into more, getting Niffler and, you know, some of these other dogs that I've spoken to into these more like 3D complex situations or lower wind, higher humidity, and you've just got like big confusing odor plumes. You know, sure. I, I've been really surprised how proficient he was in one scenario and then how completely different it looks elsewhere. And it's been really interesting to me to, yeah, use barley as my dog in white. And then still, because we tend to work outside so much, I was, um, a couple of weeks ago, I was just playing around with having two hides in the same search, one that was in direct sunlight and one that was in full shade. Um, mm-hmm. and so fun. Yeah, yeah, just, you know, just kind of like trying to beef up my own skills and understanding like what this does, because no matter how many times I read someone explain what that's going to do, I need to just see my dogs do it over and over again. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, but it was just funny watching 
you know, even just the cloud cover would shift during the course of one of these exercises or between when I took barley out and when I took Niffler out. And it's like, gosh darn it. Now I don't even have the same scent picture anymore, even though I'm searching these dogs like five minutes apart. We do the best yeah, we can. Absolutely. And, you know, I think I, so much of it is just, uh, yeah, what you said, like it's mistakes, mistakes are data. It's okay. Um, you know, if you're consistently running into these situations where things are not behaving the way that you expect them to, it's time to, you know, take a step back and see, you know, maybe where a gap is potentially in your understanding, but it doesn't have to For be sure. something that we beat ourselves up over. And also it's a handler team, right? So we want our dogs to really have the agency to be able to search the area, but we need to have a search plan in mind and kind of put them in the right places in the right way. Right. So we hear this paradigm of like, always get downwind, always get downwind. Sometimes that's not your best option. Sometimes the dog gets lost in that odor cone for like, if it's really gusty for a long time and they really exhausted themselves. And so maybe the better choice there is to start upwind of your target so that they're in this nice negative And then there's this huge contrast of change. Right? That's actually they- how we're taught to search on the wind farms. Yeah. Because your odor cones can be so long. And I had some fun last summer. Um, you know, we're supposed to start upwind and then kind of grid downwind. And part of that is also because you can have up to, you know, you can have many, many potential targets in the same 100 meter by 100 meter square. So you want to kind of be trying to clear areas as you move downwind rather than starting downwind. And then you're probably just going to find the largest or freshest vat and you might run past some older, you know, skeletons or partially scavenged vats. Um, Yeah, that makes a lot of sense I also had a lot of fun just, you know, last year I would toggle back and forth between whether I started upwind or downwind on the same on the on a plot and just see how that changed my dog's detection distance how it changed their search strategy and their behavior and whether or not we were faster to the first hide on average or um you know yeah and all sorts of stuff and like it's it's a pretty specific scenario so it's not like it's anything that is shareable or publishable or anything like that but it was really really fun to just you know when you're doing these monotonous searches or you feel like you're in like a training route to do like okay well like let's just start taking data then like it feels like you're doing the same thing every time but you're not um if you actually start tracking everything Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And if you have a lot of constants where you can just change little pieces here and there in a really uh, deliberate way, then that's wonderful information. You know exactly what's functioning for that change and you have a lot of clarity about what those variables are doing with your dog. I think that's really wonderful that you think about in that systematic way. Yeah. And as you know so well, like different variables are going to be much more important depending on your target odor. You know, as an explosives person, yeah, I can understand that I would probably want to start downwind and work upwind and not, you know, be starting upwind of my target and potentially walk over it before my dog has a chance to smell it. And your, you know, your time to alert is probably one of your most important things in Mm-hmm. I would imagine having not done it. Um, yeah. Versus in conservation, if you're trying to find every single one and you might have massively varying, um, you know, volatility or volume, I guess in your, in your target yeah. orders, you might, it might make more sense to start up wind, um, but also it might not in some mm-hmm. other situations with the team in actually in Kenya, they, they start downwind as well. And then the, the area thresholds too is a big thing that we don't always consider. We think that once we cue our dogs to search, they're just going to start searching in a high quality way right away. But again, we can really shoot ourselves in the foot if we are just continually putting our hides really deep into our search areas. Our dog is like, 
I don't need to start searching for like 20 seconds. I'm just going to run around and get my yayas out, pretend like I'm searching, you know, it looks like I'm searching, but really like the nose kind of turns on deeper into the problem because we've conditioned it that way. Right. So even, um, like on car, car hides, right. Vehicle hides, you can line your dog up at the mm -hmm. rear bumper going down like the driver side or passenger side of the vehicle, or there's a nice trick from Cameron. Um, now they're trainers, I'm sure too. Start your dog perpendicular 90 degrees to the car so that they run into a surface and have to pick a direction and it slows them down. So they're not just oh, running fun. down that straight line um, and little tricks like mm -hmm. that. And then also working your dog blind whenever you can so that you don't have that influence yeah. of where it's supposed to be. You can really just read your dog. Um, and that's, that's yeah. so important. And I think people just want to be totally. right. They want to get it right. They want to get the wins, right? But really, you can get there. You can be a really wonderfully uh, like robust search team if you lean into those blind blind hides when when you're ready for it. Um, and yeah. again, I'll uh, shout out for Simon here. He has a pretty slick double blind procedure that you can do on your own in a lineup setting, um, where you just cast your dog out into an array, and your dog indicates, and you pick one, and you've labeled the bottoms of your ODDs. So say you have your target material and a bunch of distractors in a lineup in like metallic and uh, stainless shaker cans. Um, and then you've marked on the bottom and you've marked them all with the same marker. So they're all consistently contaminated, which one's the target and then what the distractors are. So your dog is locked into an indication. You say, okay, thank you, dog. You pick up the can. It's good or it's no good. If it's good, you put it back down. You let the dog settle back into the indication. You mark and you reinforce. So you reinforce if you're paying direct or indirect. But so in that way, you just by yourself can be working double blind and gain so much confidence in your dog. And then you can vary the difficulty there by the um, kind of the degrees of saliency of your distractors that you're putting out in that lineup or the threshold of odor that you're using or X, Y, or Z, so many other variables, right, that you can hit in those uh, discrimination problems. But still, you're working blind and you're seeing, you're gaining trust in your dog because you can trust your dog all you want but I think really you should trust in your training and know your dog. Yeah. Well, that's probably as good a place as I need to end it there. Um, so Lily, thank you so much for coming on. I feel like we could have talked for another 16 hours and um, we might <laughs> yeah, have to just bring you. you back on for some more discussions. But um, in the meantime, where can people find you online if they're interested in staying in touch or learning more about what you are up to? Um, if you have any upcoming courses or anything like that, feel free to plug them as well. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you. Um, they can find me on my Instagram or Facebook. It's my name, Lily Strasberg. Um, I'll be doing a few workshops with Simon Prince down the East coast. Um, I, yeah, uh, in June, I'll be also up in Canada in July for the women's working dog center. Uh, sorry, women's working dog seminar in Dundalk. <laughs> if anyone wants to travel internationally for that, that's a really fun event at, uh, Mike Nesbitt's place up in Canada. And then I will be presenting at the smart dog conference in Phoenix in August. Wow. Yeah. Those all sound like really great act, um, really great ways to spend, um, a lot of time and money, um, just <laughs> learning a ton. So, um, I hope that some of our listeners might consider checking those things out and for everyone at home, thank you all so much for listening. I hope this inspired you to get outside and be a canine conservationist in whatever way suits your passions and your skill set. As always, you can find show notes, transcripts, sign up for our course and our learning club 
on Patreon all over through canineconservationists.org. We'll be back next week. Bye.